Welcome to Cato Audio for April 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. I have to note something. This is something of a special social distancing edition of Cato Audio, and I will have to beg your indulgence for our audio quality this month, and maybe for a few after that. Our scholars are doing their part by avoiding, well, everyone, and our recordings reflect that fact. As we saw the novel coronavirus that causes COVID-19 take hold in the middle of March, the Cato Institute's office is closed. Our original slate of recordings for Cato Audio seemed suddenly and seriously out of date. But we've been working to understand the nature of the challenge posed by this virus, the appropriate policy response to it. As we learn more about the impacts COVID-19 will have on markets, business, families, and government, it's at least nice to see that some of the very first restrictions to get the heave-ho at the state and federal level were regulations that were never needed in the first place. And getting rid of them will help speed the process of defeating the threat posed by this virus. Cato's Will Yateman makes his case. Congress is continuing to work on uh, either a stimulus package or writing checks to to uh, all adult Americans. Uh, but this was, of course, not their first uh, legislative action in response to COVID-19. Uh, what has Congress done so far as of this recording? Well, as of this recording, they're working on their third measure. So uh, a couple weeks ago, they actually passed a first measure of $8.3 billion um, directed specifically at, at uh, the medical supply chain, if you will. I mean, from hospitals to, to everything else. Um, uh, subsequently, they passed a sort of a mini stimulus that in essence uh, uh, expanded um, and beefed up, if you will, existing social safety net um, factors. Uh, or policies. And currently, they're sort of working on a big kick and caboodle. So, you know, after starting with sort of a, a, a targeted plan, you know, that first measure targeted at the uh, the health supply chain per se, the second measure is sort of beefing up existing um, safety net authorities. And, and currently, they're working on sort of this grand stimulus-esque a trillion dollar measure um, to keep the economy or to respond uh, in an economic fashion to the economic damage that's been wrought by the response to COVID. What powers have been unlocked for the president with respect to this, which is, I, I think, legitimately, you could call it a national emergency? Oh, I think it's completely fair. I mean, I think that th this is a uh, when the founders created a, a single executive, a single president that in which they vested the executive power, um, it was very much with emergencies such as this in mind. So this is actually one of the rare areas of policy, um, the response to COVID-19, where I'm not as alarmed as I normally am by uh, the President Trump and uh, declaring these emergencies, which tap these statutory authorities, uh, these laws that Congress passes that give the president enhanced powers um, in various areas when he declares an emergency. So he, he's done this uh, uh, for a number um, of statutes. Uh, the, the most consequential um, seems to have been the 
uh, the declaration of uh, the emergency declaration under Title 42 of the U.S. Code. That's a fancy way of saying under the public health laws. And this, in effect, gives the agencies in his administration, the Department of Health and Human Services, in particular, uh, greater flexibility, greater latitude to suspend or certain rules that might get in the way of a more of effective response to um, the ongoing public crisis. So uh, that's sort of the big one. And that was done um, earlier this week or, or late last week, but pardon my confusion for um, precisely when, but a couple of days ago. Actually, today, um, the president uh, announced an emergency under the Defense Production Act. And uh, this would authorize the, the White House to nationalize industries in response to um, the, the, the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, I'll say this, it, it, pointedly, the White House noted that they would uh, exercise this authority if needed, quote unquote. And, and I think that's a very telling phrase. Uh, the, the president's rhetoric to date has very much uh, recognized uh, the relative efficiencies of private sector supply chains versus what the government can do. So a uh, part of me thinks that this was largely a measure to reassure the people that you know he's he's taking this seriously and that he's declaring you know emergencies as appropriate. Um, but I, I strongly doubt whether or not the, pro, the the White House and the federal government is going to swoop in and take over uh, nationalized industries. But those are uh, that's a, the gist of what the president has done so far in terms of tapping his existing authorities. Okay, so uh, at the at the state level and the and the federal level, uh, a lot of regulations have just been uh, relaxed or eased or done away with, at least temporarily. And a lot of those regulations appear on the wish lists of for elimination uh, by libertarians uh, all over the place. Indeed, we we've seen uh, a lot of measures along the lines of what I spoke of before, of sort of uh, where rigidity caused by regulations has gotten in the way of effective responses to COVID. And here, certainly the, the most famous or notorious one is uh, the New York Times brought to light about 10 days ago, the fiasco in Seattle, where uh, private parties had developed a fairly effective test for COVID um, and, and used it in violation of the law in, in violation of, of FDA regulations regarding the development and use of such tests and, and, and by so doing ended up arguably um, saving a lot of lives. So it's, a, you know, we, telemedicine would be another area where we've seen uh, sort of some obvious um, loosening of restrictions. Um, but, but not just there, it's a, a, we've seen pushes um, when it comes to Department of Education regulations for, for homeschooling. And, and here it's uh, special needs, or, or that is to say, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA. So it, that is a law that, uh, that's a, a noble cause. I'll say my twin is disabled. That's something, you know, I'm actually incredibly sympathetic to the disabled community. But at the same time, it, it was uh, the, the, the perfect being the enemy of the good in terms of a response to COVID and homeschooling. I mean, the extent to which rigid ADA rules were, were schools were making a determination whereby instead of trying to accommodate just the vast preponderance of our students and thereby running afoul of the ADA, we're just not going to try, we're not going to accommodate anybody and everybody's on their own. So um, that sort of measure, and, and even down to, to smaller levels. So we, we've seen on, on college campuses, 
across the board. As, as students have been um, sent home, and I'm sure everyone's read about that or experienced it themselves, but uh, uh, textbooks, uh, colleges across the board, and I thought this was amazing. Um, they've said, well, we realize that many of you perhaps left your textbooks behind um, in the rush to get home. Well, we're just going to send you PDF copies of these textbooks to begin with, you know, which got a lot of people asking, well, shoot, why do we have to spend $400 to begin with to get these things? Um, so um, our, our colleague Walter Olson wrote in Cato at Liberty about uh, the loosening of the licensing it's, uh, regulations, um, in, in particular for nurses, uh, sort of a rigidity there had precluded a number of well-meaning and qualified people from participating in the public health response. And um, the governor, Larry Hogan, there had, had, had acted in response to that uh, by with a very common sense measure um, to, again, allow the, 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 the most possible number of health professionals out there doing as much good and help as possible. So uh, I've got other examples, <laughs> you know, if you, if you want to continue in this vein. But the, the common thread is that uh, policymakers, when confronted with regulations that sort of didn't make any sense to begin with, and, and in this situation, were actually hampering a response, um, they've done something that is very common sense minded and, and, and uh, loosened the regulations and thereby attained flexibility. Maybe you can explain this to me. What mechanically within the, the levers of government allows these agencies to just cast this regulation aside? Is, are, these, are these executive decisions or uh, are heads of agencies able to simply say, well, this we're going to get rid of this? Uh, when you're talking about like medical licensure and allowing people to become licensed across state lines and things like that, like uh, Jared Polis in Colorado did it, um, Washington State did it, Texas has done something similar. Uh, Massachusetts and other states have done something similar. Well, is, does this have to come from a governor or uh, the president, or can these agency heads just say, "Look, we're just not gonna, we're not gonna deal with this for the foreseeable future"? It can be both. Um, so mechanisms. Or we spoke about one such mechanism when, when I was talking before about the the emergency powers that President Trump has tapped into. Um, governors have the same sorts of statutory powers, and to be sure, they've been. Um, invoked uh, by governors across the country. At the same time, agencies, uh, both at the federal and the state level, it's uh, all of them, uh, if not all of them, then virtually all of them. Um, the rules by which agencies issue rules to begin with, or regulations, they all have this uh, good cause or emergency provision that in essence allows an agency to forego the normal hoops they'd have to jump through in order to change their rules in times of emergency or crisis such as the present times um, and thereby alter their rules on the fly for the better. So a, a mix of both when it comes to uh, the legal authorities for the changes afoot. Will Yateman is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. The coronavirus hasn't just affected retail and customer-facing businesses. The businesses that supply those retail establishments have also faced additional stresses by the government and other disruptions associated with this novel coronavirus. 
Cato's Simon Lester makes the case that even, and perhaps especially in a time of pandemic, international trade provides crucial cooperation that minimizes disruption in any difficult time. In a moment when we have essentially a global pandemic of, a, of an infectious disease, and people need access to uh, basic goods, particularly in uh, countries where uh, trade is is <laughs> not uh, as robust as we might hope. What are some changes that you recommend immediately that would uh, smooth the movement of goods to uh, the people who need and want them? Well, one obvious place to look is that uh, as part of the Trump administration's you know, trade wars, uh, we've imposed tariffs on medical products, on imports of medical products. And, you know, we, we in the trade policy world argued a lot about that, you know, over the past couple of years, whether that made sense. And us on the free trade side tried to make the case for why these trade restrictions, why these tariffs don't make sense. But I think that today, in the face of this pandemic and with a great need um, for all kinds of, of, of crucial medical products, uh, masks, gloves, goggles, uh, hospital beds, ventilators, it makes a lot of sense to take the the taxes off those products. Um, you know, clearly we're all we're only harming ourselves by by making the, these products more expensive. What happened was we imposed these tariffs on imports for, from China, and China said, "Well, fine, we'll we'll send them somewhere else." Um, so I think that the, the the first thing we can do is stop shooting ourselves in the foot and uh, remove tariffs from on imports of medical products. And, and the Trump administration has, has been reluctant to do that, but they, they have, in, in, the, in the past few days, um, taken off tariffs on a few of the, the most crucial products. But I think they could go further. I think it's time to recognize that regardless of your, your ideology on these matters, uh, your tariffs on imports of medical products in the midst of a pandemic don't make a lot of sense. So uh, Peter Navarro, uh, one of the president's trade advisors, uh, has very particular views about um, essentially what trade, what functions trade ought to perform. And uh, he has said that the United States doesn't have allies in a situation like this. What do you make of that comment? I think that uh, the way the Trump administration has behaved on, on trade over the past couple of years we have certainly aggravated a lot of our allies and, and our alliances seem particularly weak. Um, but I, I mean, that's, I think, a, a function of how the Trump administration has acted. I don't think it's anything inherent um, in, in a pandemic. Uh, your Whether you have allies depends on, on how you behave and how you treat, treat other countries. And so I, I think that there are uh, there is room for uh, working together with countries around the world um, to to deal with this problem. I mean, I think it, we're going to see we're, we're seeing this pandemic go in waves and certain countries affected worse than others. And I think that the ones who are you know hurt now and were hurt first, uh, we need to be helping them out at the same time as they go through and sort of reach the other side. They're going to have expertise uh, that, that we can then learn from. And I think we have to put a lot of our other differences aside and put our, our trade wars and other conflicts on hold for now and see if we can you know, work together. I mean, you, you're seeing, I think one of the, the most uh, disastrous regions is, is Iran. And I mean, I understand how the relations with Iran are, are tense and full of conflict and have been for decades. Um, but when you, when you see mass graves um, in Iran, you know, we think, isn't there a way that, that we can put things on hold and, and try to help Iran out? 
And if it, in in two months it's the United States who who's you know experiencing what what Italy and others are experiencing right now, um, well, I would hope that that others will will then be in a position to help us when we need it. Simon Lester is a trade policy analyst at the Cato Institute. The civil liberties implications of a pandemic are hard to overstate. Governors ordering the closure of businesses, imposing restrictions on the kinds of activities people can share with each other, federal law enforcers seeking special powers. A few of these actions might make sense over a brief time period, but how best to keep them from becoming a long-term ratcheting up of government authority? I spoke with Cato's Patrick Eddington last month. I've seen a lot of police departments uh, talking about what they won't be uh, responding to uh, in the in the coming weeks, and some of those are, uh, you know, s- certain fender benders, certain uh, uh, kinds of uh, mistreatment of intentional mistreatment of one another uh, that they they won't be responding to, and yet on on the flip side, uh, the feds you see. A lot of move to get emergency powers. So, what do you make of uh, those efforts so far, and do any of them make sense to you? Well, I don't think there's any question that you know the stay-at-home orders and and all the rest of that, given the nature of the virus right now, uh, are clearly steps that actually need to be taken. And I think it's uh, a good news story that uh, we're seeing. Uh, as you indicated, police departments uh, and and other law enforcement related entities basically saying they're not going to enforce what some are referring to as quality of life crimes or, you know, things of that nature. Um, I think that's great. What has me deeply concerned, uh, quite frankly, is this Politico piece that ran on March 24th uh, by Josh Gerstein, the headline of which is, those who intentionally spread coronavirus could be charged as terrorists. Uh, the subhead, the Justice Department offers guidance on how to deal with, quote, purposeful exposure and infection of others, end quote. And they're clearly, you know, drawing on war on terror language and experience here. And the, the Politico piece goes on to, to quote uh, a memo that was sent out by Deputy Attorney General Jeff Rosen to U.S. attorneys across the country Quote, because coronavirus appears to meet the statutory definition of a, quote, biological agent, end quote, such acts potentially could implicate the nation's terrorism-related statutes. Threats or attempts to use COVID-19 as a weapon against Americans will not be tolerated. So, you know, if a guy were to go into a supermarket, for example, and knew he was infected and started, you know, opening up ice cream and licking it and then putting it back and all the rest of that, uh, should that guy be taken into custody and charged with endangering public health? Yes. Uh, is is he a terrorist? Uh, probably not. Definitely a jerk. But I don't I don't think a a terrorist in that respect. And this is what bothers me about about this language and this approach is that they're trying to classify COVID nineteen essentially as a biological agent, a biological weapon, if you will. And we don't have any evidence uh, that that it is in fact that. The evidence we have tells us that it, it's in the same family, essentially, as SARS and MERS, 
just essentially a variant of that. Those were absolutely, unfortunately, relatively naturally occurring, uh, certainly not bioengineered in a, in a bio level four hazard lab in, in China or Russia or anywhere else so far as we, or the United States, uh, so far as we know. So I, I think, again, this is DOJ, hair on fire, war on terror mentality, just kind of out of control. And it's exactly the kind of thing that, that, we need lawmakers to speak out and say dead on arrival. So uh, Israel has passed uh, an emergency law to use mobile phone data to track people infected with uh, COVID-19. And there is at least some indication, there is some interest at certain levels of government to do that in the United States. And and I worry about the ideas, uh, usually very bad ideas, that our Israeli friends wind up uh, giving our folks uh, in the intelligence and law enforcement community. And that is certainly one of them. I mean, this is obviously a technology uh, that we know has already been used uh, to keep track of uh, of Americans, uh, the scooping up of, of their cell phone data, of course, their uh, telephone-related data uh, is what Edward Snowden exposed Coming up uh, this June, it'll actually be seven years now. It's kind of hard to believe it's been that long. Uh, but we've known for, it's a, at this point, for at least 15 years that this technology exists and it is absolutely ripe for being misused. And again, this is a classic example of where I think some people with relatively good intentions are not thinking through the long-term implications of exactly how this technology can be misused. We're, al- we're already beginning to see uh, I think in the UK, where they're utilizing facial recognition uh, to to try to, I think also the Russians are doing this, uh, using facial recognition uh, to spot people who are are not uh, complying with stay at home directives or whatever. And this is exactly how you wind up getting literally a, a panopticon type uh, police state. And just because you know you're going to use it in this particular emergency doesn't mean you won't use it in another one. I, I think it's important. You know, you and I had, uh, had talked about this this Damon Root piece in Reason uh, earlier this week, where uh, Damon talked about the fact that when you have an emergency, and this is something that, that Robert Higgs, the you know the economist, uh, he wrote an entire book about uh, crisis and Leviathan, whereby every time there is a crisis, government uses it as an opportunity to expand. You know, in, in Higgs' context. Uh, it was it was about you know the economic expansion, the, the power of the state economically expanding. Uh, but he also touches you know on on the implications of this from a from a security standpoint, a liberty standpoint. And this is what Damon really picked up on. You know the passage of the Espionage Act uh, in 1917, a radically overbroad statute uh, with very very squishy language that was of course directly used uh, to shut down newspapers in this country that were opposed to the war. Uh, one one newspaper publisher, uh, first socialist congressman, in fact, Victor Berger of Wisconsin, uh, wound up having uh, having to deal with this and be charged with espionage, and and that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court made the wrong decision in it, uh, and and that's why we have to be concerned. Once these things get passed, it's rare that they get rolled back. There was very limited rollback uh, of some of these radical World War One measures, such as the Sedition Act, that was that was rolled back in 1921. But the Espionage Act uh, and the Trading with the Enemy Act remained on the books. And I think we're, what we're seeing now, of course, is with the Patriot Act uh, passed in 2001, you know, this October will be 19 years that that thing has been on the books, uh, which basic, basically makes it all but permanent, right? And, and that alters the fundamental character of this country. 
We uh, spoke last week about surveillance authorities that were set to expire, uh, and they did. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. This whole hair on fire uh, business uh, uh, in, in the March thirteenth period, where where folks are basically saying, "Well, you know, we've we've got to renew these three expiring authorities, or essentially people are going to die." And uh, the Senate, uh, you know, wound up having to reach a compromise measure. Uh, where the the terrible bill that came out of the House was essentially dead on arrival in the Senate, and so folks agreed to a seventy seven day extension, uh, which did actually pass the Senate over that particular weekend. But as of today, so far as I can tell, uh, that measure is still quote at the desk in the House of Representatives, which, which means uh, you know that that the House has not acted on it as yet, and and that means essentially that those three authorities quote expired end quote. Now the reality is, as Senator Burr kind of gave gave away the game here uh, during the debate on on all this stuff uh, over a week ago, uh, under Executive Order twelve triple three, essentially the executive branch can basically continue to do this stuff, uh, and they can do it basically without any kind of court review. So the idea that you know they don't have the emergency authorities to do this stuff, or that the expiration of the roving wiretap thing is going to you know lead to a disaster. Um, those those have always been hype. Uh, we're, we're seeing right now that they're hype. If they really had you know something to go on here, uh, where they actually had a real crisis, we would be hearing about that at least as much as we are the COVID nineteen crisis, and we simply aren't. And and that's how we know that again, this is a scam. It's a game. Attorney General Barr seems uh, set to assume uh, that courts are largely unable to do a lot of the work that they that they have been doing uh, and would like the ability to detain people for some period of time that is indefinite uh, while this uh, COVID-19 crisis hopefully wears itself out. And, and I think you know, this is very much um, something that we need to be concerned about with respect to basically telling um, uh, federal judges uh, if, if this crisis makes it difficult or impossible for you to actually have, you know, in-person court meetings, uh, you can go ahead and just kind of put those off uh, un- until you're essentially in the clear. And the original reporting on this uh, that Politico gave us was that uh, this stuff, you know, might last as much as a year beyond, you know, the the stated end of the crisis. And of course, my question is, well, exactly who decides when the crisis is over? You know, is, is this a presidential proclamation that starts it? And, and do we have to have a, a presidential proclamation to end it, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, and, and we've seen, you know, this kind of, of game before where, you know, we have to have a national emergency over this or that. Uh, and then the so-called national emergency never goes away. And I think there's been enough reaction so far uh, to this bar proposal uh, by some very prominent folks in Congress, including uh, Senator Paul, Senator Schumer, and others, that the likelihood of them actually getting away with this is, is probably minimal. But that's why I think we have to be vigilant about this this two trillion dollar let's print some more money uh, coronavirus uh, response package to make sure that they're not trying to slip stuff in there uh, along these lines. It, it would certainly not be the first time that that's been done, uh, and it probably won't be the last. But I think we need to be very vigilant about that. So let's assume that uh, Congress moves ahead with some sort of uh, uh, restriction that uh, causes you and me to drop our jaws uh, and 
what what must be in there uh, in order to give you any kind of peace at all? Uh, an absolute uh, firm date uh, for the uh, for the suspension of said authorities. Uh, I I would say that you know we had the initial guidance come out of the CDC that folks should basically stay in place for a couple of months, uh, eight weeks or so. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, if it if it doesn't have a firm expiration date in it, uh, and I'm I'm not talking about any carve outs here either, you know, because we can see language like shall expire on you know 60 days after comma unless the president certifies in writing that dot 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 we, that's the kind of language that we could never never agree to. We should never agree to. Uh, and and if we're we have language like that in there, then that is absolutely a prescription for the kind of uh, radically increased population control that I think all of us are deeply concerned about this kind of crisis can actually lead us to. Patrick Eddington is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. As recession fears mount over the coronavirus and Congress moves to extend both credit and cash payments, there's an important distinction to be drawn between government action that enhances liquidity and government action that provides greater solvency. Cato's Diego Zuluaga and I spoke about that just as the coronavirus crisis was taking hold in March. As this... uh, coronavirus crisis takes hold, uh, a lot of uh, public services have said, well, we're not, we're going to uh, stop water shutoffs. Um, uh, A lot of uh, New York has just uh, implemented a measure to uh, end evictions, at least temporarily. Uh, What else have, uh, or I should say, what guidance do banks have with respect to uh, individuals who are cash strapped in this environment. Well, yesterday, two of the main banking regulators, the Office of the Controller of the Currency and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, issued guidance telling banks that if they decide to forbear debt, to delay payments on debt, to suspend certain fees or waive them in the context of the coronavirus crisis that bank examiners won't look askance at the kind of behavior that they won't consider it endangering banks' balance sheets. And that was meant to reassure banks that I think are looking to help consumers who are increasingly facing liquidity issues and potentially in the future may face solvency issues, at least some of them, as a result of income shortfalls, um, emergency expenses, and various other life circumstances that, that are shocks that weren't predicted before the outbreak. I don't think there is a problem with that particular guidance. It is good to reassure financial institutions about what will and will not harm them in future examinations. It should be noted, though, that this is behavior that is standard operating procedure for financial institutions because they want to do well by their customers and they want to keep them. And also, most financial institutions have cash and other forms of immediate liquidity that they can resort to in the event of of an emergency. And they also have capital that reassure shareholders and others that they will be able to withstand a shock of this nature. For the benefit of listeners, and there there have been some people who are, I think, intentionally uh, conflating these issues, 
Uh, what is the difference between liquidity and solvency? A liquidity problem is a mismatch between the inflow of funds and the outflows of it. So if you make $3,000 a month, you pay $1,200 in rent and you spend $1,500 on other expenses, you have more income than you have expenses every month. But if you have your expenses coming in at the beginning of the month and your income only at the end, you may need some sort of device to bridge that liquidity gap in the meantime. And most people use credit cards, they use personal lines of credit and various other instruments to do so. Now, on the other hand, if, you, if your income is 2,500, then no longer is it just an issue of the timing of payments. It's an issue of the sustainability of your finances in the medium term, because you are consistently spending more than you earn. The importance of this in the context of the coronavirus crisis is that we will have a significant portion of Americans who will have payments delayed as a result of the crisis, potentially reduced for a period of time. And they may also have additional emergency expenses so that they face immediate liquidity issues as a result. Most of these people can make use of the credit that they have access to, but some people have already maxed out their credit cards. They may not have easy access to other forms of credit. It should be noted that about half of Americans revolve some credit card balance each month. And so uh, it's important in, in these circumstances to consider other ways, and financial institutions are doing so, to enable households to bridge the gap. Now, that doesn't mean forgiving debt. It doesn't mean necessarily waiving fees or reducing interest. It means simply extending it in consideration of the fact that this is an exceptional situation. Now, if some of those liquidity problems evolve into solvency issues, say because some people become unemployed, because some people just find themselves permanently worse off as a result of the crisis, their income never goes back to what it was before the crisis, then you have to deal with those issues on an individual basis. But now is not the time to think about debt restructuring and debt forgiveness, certainly not from a policy perspective. Diego Zuluaga is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. While Congress was debating so-called stimulus legislation to respond to the threat of the novel coronavirus, it became clear to some that stimulus was not exactly what was needed. I spoke with Cato's Ryan Bourne about the nature of the recession the United States is now certain to enter and why it's so very different from recessions past. Congress has, uh, at least as of this recording, uh, appeared to be in a deadlock over uh how to address uh, the coronavirus, how do you evaluate what they've done so far? Well, I think the most important thing to think about in regard to this virus is why it's so different economically to an ordinary recession and why, therefore, it requires a different policy response to the extent it requires a policy response than an ordinary recession. Um, with an ordinary recession, um, GDP will decline a lot. The economy will... Um, lead to a range of firms going bankrupt, usually the firms that were kind of weakest. And in that rebound, there'll be a reallocation of capital, a reallocation of resources um, to, to, to new firms. And over time, you know, the unemployment rate, although it spiked, falls, and we return back to a degree of normality. 
a pandemic is a fundamentally different economic phenomenon. Um, it's different in the sense that in the short term, we almost want GDP to, de- to decline because that's evidence that we're engaging in the, the social distancing and, and not interacting as much in order to curb um, the spread of the virus. Um, and it's different in the sense that because no business or, or most businesses couldn't have foreseen such a, an occurrence, um, it's hurting both the viable and non-viable businesses, weak and strong businesses uh, in certain sectors entirely. Um, the virus doesn't care what your balance sheet looked like prior to coming along. It's kind of sweeping through the economy. And as a result of the virus itself changing behavior and leading to uh, different policies being imposed, demand for certain activities is completely cratering. So what what Congress, I think, should be doing is thinking through from where we are now, how do we solve the fundamental public health problem in the longer term such that we can enable a normalization of economic life as soon as is feasibly possible? Um, now, the way that they're trying to do this, um, at least in the latest Senate Republican bill, is to try and provide firms and households with a whole range of liquidity to kind of tide them over in the in the short term so that um, everybody can, as far as possible, can maintain their jobs, maintain their incomes, to see them through into the recovery. Um, and that's fine as far as it goes. The difficulty becomes, unless you address the underlying public health issue, um, you're simply deferring the problem. And, and if the virus is still there, even after the two to three months, we're in a, a terrible situation where either you have to kind of uh, release the economic shackles, in which case you risk worsening the health crisis, or uh, you keep everybody under these heavy, heavy-handed isolation and lockdown measures, which does severe economic damage. So we want to try and avoid that. What we've got to try and do is thread the needle such that um, we try and get to grips with the public health crisis as soon as possible, because it's only from that that we'll get a strong economic recovery. All right. So uh, because there are countries that appear to have done this well, um, and because we are further along in the process of this exponent potential exponential growth of this uh, virus, our decisions are not this going to be the same, and our decision set is not going to be the same as countries like South Korea. No, I think that's right. Um, I think um, when you look at what South Korea did um, once they recognised the virus was a potential problem, they relatively quickly uh, rolled out tons of testing and did what um, epidemiologists call contact tracing. So you try and work out who's interacted with the the individual who's um, showing symptoms or has been confirmed with the virus, and you try and contain it in that way whilst keeping as much of the rest of the economy open. Clearly, we aren't there yet, um, or, or we're not there, and we're not going to be able to do that. We can't turn back the clock. Um, but you know, we shouldn't deny that lockdowns and government mandates um, for all non-essential businesses to close down. These do real economic harm. Uh, lots of the economic harm would happen anyway, just through consequence of the virus, because people have naturally and rationally changed their decisions. Even if the government said that I could go out today 
and, uh, and and go back to the cinema or restaurants. I probably wouldn't because I want to avoid contracting the virus in the near term. Uh, but they do cause net economic harm. Uh, that economic harm is acceptable to the extent that we use this period to really get to grips with the public health problem. But at the moment, what policymakers seem to be doing uh, is just suggesting tons of relief for businesses and households uh, without really thinking through how this period of uh, lockdown, which they're providing the relief for, will actually be used to solve the underlying public health problem. And without that, you're never going to get back to a completely normal uh, economy until that issue is dissipated. So we're talking about sort of long-term behavioral change uh, to facilitate the ramping back up of a lot of economic activity that uh, absent that change is ill-advised. I think that's right. Uh, I like to think about it like this. We're walking across a tightrope uh, right now where on the one hand, you've got a, a terrible healthcare crisis. If everybody just acted as, as normal, uh, most of the modeling seems to suggest that you'd run into a position where um, demands on healthcare vastly exceed the capacity of the healthcare system. That could have big destructive consequences for life and for people's health. And uh, given most economists tend to think the value of a human life is pretty high, um, that has quite a destructive impact. Or, you know, if, if you're in a position where uh, you're going to have to lock down for uh, uh, very, very long periods, that obviously has very destructive consequences too. So you want to try and kind of flatten that um, curve of cases to avoid the worst healthcare outcomes uh, in the short term. But you do want to be thinking through, you know, what, what are we doing during this period to actually develop testing, vaccines, antibody development, making sure that we... We know who's had the virus, who's immune to it, such that um, as soon as possible, the economy can re return to normal. Um, so, you know, I'm sympathetic to the idea that in the short term, you need a, a fair degree of self-isolation measures. I think um, when governments come along and say all non-essential businesses can close and, and declare complete lockdowns, I think that can be problematic uh, because politicians don't know how different sectors interact and quite often one man's um, non-essential business is a, a, one bureaucrat's non-essential business is another uh, essential business's essential supplier and I think there's a risk that if we do a kind of top-down mandates that say everybody's closed unless otherwise um, outlined by governments then we could have a lot of unintended consequences and, and destruction. But I, again, I'll kind of circle back to the central point is that the economy will only return to normal when the, the virus is no longer a threat to a, the vast majority of people. And that's the only way you'll get that full kind of V-shaped recovery. Um, but, you know, politicians at the moment are too busy thinking about um, stimulus and, and relief without thinking through, you know, how feasible it is to provide relief in anything other than the short term and actually how you solve the public health issues such that you can return to normality as soon as possible. What I'm inferring from a lot of what you're saying and from what I hear from people like Michael Cannon and Chris Edwards here at Cato is that uh, Congress is not the appropriate tool in, in a, for a lot of this. A lot of this is uh, individuals needing to figure out 
uh, what kinds of interactions are absolutely necessary for themselves. A lot of businesses trying to figure out what kinds of uh, interactions uh, they should be allowing. And the blunt instrument of government just really isn't that good at, at navigating uh, the decisions here that need to be made. Well, I think Congress can play a role, but people are still thinking about the role of the federal government in this, at least in economic terms, as if this is an ordinary recession. And they're talking about how government can stimulate the economy, you know, where government relief can go to ameliorate some of the short-term consequences. I think Congress can provide a role, and some libertarians have had to kind of reassess our priors, given this is a public health crisis and it's not an ordinary type of recession. Congress can play a role in the very, very short term in terms of providing relief to businesses that they've mandated to close or other governors have, have mandated to close and providing relief to households through unemployment insurance and existing programs such that there's not widespread economic hardship as a result of this uh, shutdown, much of which, as you say, is driven by changes uh, to individual behavior. What Congress can't do and I think it would be dangerous to do, is to try to uh, use its tools, spending taxes, to try to stimulate the economy and um, you know, try and push economic activity. Because actually in the short term, we want economic activity to a certain extent to fall. It's natural to, to want it to fall because that's the only way you're going to get to grips with um, the virus being transmitted. What we then need, and uh, this is where the public health, um, you know, in public health industry, uh, uh, people in government really need to be playing a key role. Is thinking how, when all of these different uh, policies are being imposed, and we're seeing this slowdown in activity because people are staying home, how is this time being used such that we can uh, like really get down the problem of the virus, hold down the problem of the virus over the long term, such that we can. Re- return to normal economic activity. Instead, people are talking about just relief and stimulus and uh, and a whole range of other things, which really uh, you would hear about and talk about after an ordinary recession, uh, but this isn't an ordinary recession. Ryan Bourne occupies the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at the Cato Institute. Bureaucratic errors made containing the novel coronavirus considerably more difficult. The FDA restricted private firms from marketing coronavirus tests and limited who could make face masks. Those restrictions are mercifully gone now, but those and other costly delays have made the problems we face much worse. Cato's Michael Cannon details some important next steps. How do you evaluate uh, the government's attempts to get testing widely distributed thus far? The government so far has not taken the steps it needs to take in order to allow the sort of widespread testing for the novel coronavirus that we would need in order to uh, understand how this uh, uh this virus has spread so far, and uh, understand how, how best to combat it, what 
containment measures are going to work and what containment measures are not going to work. And that failure to take those steps has, has really made this problem much worse than it needed to be. What happened was that for two months, the first two months of a pandemic, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration blocked from the market in the United States all but one diagnostic test for this virus. And the one that it allowed on the market was the one produced by the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. And it turned out that the CDC's test was faulty. They sent that test to lots of uh, state labs, and many of those state labs could not make the test work. Those included state labs that were, were trying to respond uh, to the breakouts in New York and Washington State. And so, really, at what, whereas states that had uh, very that were not hotspots, they had tests that they were not even using. Uh, so, so the CDC, so the EFDA created these shortage situations by having such a high barrier to entry into the, into the U.S. market for these tests. And then the CDC did a terrible job of rationing this very scarce uh, uh, product. Uh, well, first, they did a terrible job of producing it, and then a terrible job of getting the existing tests to where they needed to be. And that has really let this problem grow uh, uh, much more rapidly than it needed to. And it is largely the reason why we are having these uh, these massive shutdowns and these massive uh, uh, pieces of legislation moving through Congress, uh, spending uh, uh, billions upon billions of dollars and wanting to send money to everybody and 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 so much more fear and uncertainty around this issue. It all be- it began for want of enough diagnostic tests. Okay, so uh, there have been some positive changes on uh, the side of the ledger. That is, a lot of uh, states have made it a lot easier for uh, health facilities to operate, giving them uh, quite a bit more flexibility. The feds have done some, taken some similar actions. How do you evaluate that on the whole? So those steps are welcome. Uh, I think you have to understand them in the context. Again, uh, this problem, the the, the outbreak has uh, become much worse than it needed to be because we were not able to do the aggressive uh, public health legwork that you want to do at the beginning of this sort of a crisis. Uh, And that failure has necessitated a lot of steps that states have taken in order to remove the other barriers that the government usually puts in the way of getting healthcare resources to people who need them. These include things like the barriers that clinician licensing laws create uh, to health professionals practicing in a state other than their own, in a state in which they do not have a license, uh, allowing people, uh, health, health professionals who have let their licenses lapse, maybe because they've retired or they've changed professions, uh, begin to practice again. So states like uh, New York and Massachusetts have taken steps in this direction to liberalize those laws. There are other laws, though, that are standing in the way of creating the sort of uh, capacity that we will need for the, uh, the, the wave of serious COVID-19 infections that is coming. And again, that wave is going to be worse because of the government's initial failures. Uh, those include laws that many states still have on the books that 
require you to get permission from the state before you can build a new hospital bed. These states are called, or these, these laws are called certificate of need laws. Many states still have them. Some states have repealed them. But many states still require you to get permission from a state board before you can build a new hospital, expand your hospital uh, so that you can care for more people and so forth. And usually what ends up happening with these laws is incumbent hospitals go to the board and testify you should not be able to open a new hospital that competes with them. And so you don't get uh, uh, new hospital beds. And in some cases, these laws can even apply to medical equipment. And so some states need to move those uh, or uh, uh, clear those laws out of the way so that uh, hospitals and others can uh, uh, can expand the number of beds that are available to take care of this uh, this large number of patients with severe COVID-19 that are coming their way. Uh, but you know, before we even get to those changes, there's still changes that need to be made on the diagnostic testing front. If you want to understand how bad the FDA's failure was here, consider what would happen if the if the FDA were had no power to block diagnostic tests from the market. The first diagnostic tests for this SARS-CoV-2 virus, the one that causes the disease COVID-19, were available in early January. They were available on January 10th or January 13th, sometime around that. And as soon as they became available, uh, all sorts of labs around the world, uh, or as soon as the gene sequencing of this uh, of this novel coronavirus became available, all sorts of other labs began uh, developing diagnostic tests. The Charité Hospital in Berlin was among the first. The World Health Organization uh, certified their tests and began distributing that test to uh, somewhere around uh, 120 countries by now, uh, 1.5 million of these tests. If the moment that the Charité Hospital had developed their test and other labs around the world began developing their tests, American consumers, American health systems, American labs had been able to buy those immediately, well, that would have supercharged the, the demand and, and the investment in the in efforts to produce these tests, there would have been more tests available around the world, but also in the United States. And we could have done the public health surveillance that we needed to do. We could have tested not only people who are symptomatic, but anyone who had traveled from uh, from the, the hotspots like Wuhan, China, or Italy. We could have done random testing of people throughout the United States to have an idea uh, uh, of how far this virus had spread and was spreading. Um, but we didn't do that. And as a result, as I mentioned before, the virus spread more broadly uh, than, than anyone, that it needed to and that anyone knew. And you have to keep this in mind, uh, this, this profound uh, government failure in mind when you are looking at the government to take other steps in order to mitigate the damage from this pandemic. The reason the FDA made the mistakes that it did is that it faces a huge information problem. The FDA will come under all sorts of criticism if one of these diagnostic tests that it allows on the market is faulty. But if it blocks all the tests from the market, then it doesn't come under that, that, uh, that criticism. And no one can say, really, that 
I would, uh, I in particular would have been saved from this test if there had been more diagnostic tests or saved from this virus if there had been more of these diagnostic tests on the market. We know that those people exist, but it's much harder to identify them on an individual basis. And so the FDA never gets in sufficient information about the people who are harmed by its overly cautious approach toward letting tests on the market. And the same thing applies to new medical treatments and medical devices uh, and so forth. And the government faces the same sort of information asymmetry all across the board. Politicians right now are very afraid that they are going to get blamed if they don't implement the most restrictive sort of shutdowns and infringements on our civil liberties as they can in order to stop the spread of the virus, uh, but they get much less information about the harm, the economic harm that those measures are going to cause. So just as we did, just as the FDA did not make smart cost-benefit uh, decisions at the uh, at the beginning of this pandemic crisis, uh, we should not be expecting politicians to be making smart cost-benefit decisions right now. We should uh, we should urge them all to approach this with a sense of calm and humility about. Uh, what they really know about this crisis and uh, and the effectiveness of the 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 measures that they are going to be using uh, and and, and ha- already have implemented and they're not just as w- we don't have enough information about how far this uh, disease has spread we also don't ha- have enough inf- uh, information about the mass shutdowns uh, in terms of how how well they are going to stop the spread of this uh, this virus or in terms of the costs of those uh, those steps, because I don't think that politicians have a very good sense of just how interconnected our economy is and just how much damage uh, shutting down major parts of the economy are going to cause, not just in terms of lost money. That's not even the important part, although that is significant, but in terms of things like mental health and overall health. I mean, if when when people get scared uh, uh, that they're not going to be able to make rent, they're not going to be able to buy food, that has very uh, uh, important implications for for mental health and overall health that uh, that it's not clear that the politicians who are putting these measures in fa- in place are taking into account. Michael Cannon directs health policy studies at the Cato Institute. This month's edition of Cato Audio has been largely culled from the best of recent episodes from the Cato Daily Podcast in this most unusual and challenging moment in our history. But there's no need to wait to get that content. You can visit cato.org slash podcast and get the Cato Daily Podcast every day. Of course, the Cato Institute continues to produce live events, analysis, and other content as we steadfastly advocate for freedom in this difficult time. It's all available, updated daily, at our website, cato.org. That will do it for this special social distancing edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.